I want to welcome each of you to our gathering today. Uh, If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them to Esther chapter 6. We've been working through the book of Esther. If you're a visitor today, one thing I'll just let you know is that uh, as a church, one thing that we do is we preach uh, exegetically through the scriptures. So we pick a book of the Bible, we start chapter 1, verse 1, and we just work through the entire story. And so today we find ourselves in Esther chapter 6, a series that we have entitled unnamed because guess what? The, the God is not named throughout this whole book. Uh, but today we're going to continue working through this story, uh, which is a story of faith where we're reminded that, that God's people are to have faith in God even when we don't see, hear, or feel him. You see, Esther's a story that reveals to us that God is at work in this story, but also it is a, a, a book that, that, that calls us to realize that God is at work in our stories. Even in the moments where we don't see, feel, or even hear him, he is at work. I think today in the text we, we see a really great picture of that because what happens is uh, at this point in the story we're going to see a lot of movement happen in chapter 6. But guess what? Uh, Esther and, and Mordecai are nowhere really to be found. Mordecai shows up at the end for just a moment, uh, but they don't really have a part to play in what happens. Rather, what we're going to see, although unnamed, is God at work. And so if you've been with us, what we've done is that that we we laid out a theme at the beginning. I have it up here on the screen. It says this, that our theme for Esther is that God has you here for a purpose. And he will always keep his promises, even when we feel that he's not there. And as we've journeyed along, we've been met uh, throughout this story with the difficult tension of what it means to have faith, both in Esther and in our own lives. In moments, uh, I don't know if you feel this, I believe we all do, in moments and seasons that feel silent. Or when situations seem to be working against the purpose and promises that we might desire and long for. You see, I don't want to just confuse uh, the things that, that we might desire and long for with the things that God has purposed and has promised. And I think if we're not careful, and I think one of the temptations is to believe, uh, hey, my purposes, the promises and the things I want fulfilled, that's actually what needs to happen when maybe God has never purposed or promised any of that. And so we need to be really careful. I mean, uh, uh, living a life of saying, hey, I want my purposes and promises fulfilled, or I want uh, life to go the way I want, that's how we got where we are all the way back in the garden, right? And so I think that this leads us to wrestle with question. As we uh, wrestle with the tension of these moments of, uh, God, you feel silent, or uh, maybe you're going through a season of struggle, heartache, pain, whatever it is, the question that can arise is, man, what are we to do in those moments? I think really you've got two options. Option one is trust in self to fulfill it, right? How many of you, maybe that's kind of the first option you tend to go to? Uh, Like, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to take care of it, I got it. And we run after that. Maybe in that, maybe it's due to, well, I've just always been told, you better fix it or else. Or maybe it's just, well, when I fix it, my ego and my pride get lifted up. We've we've worked through this uh, talk of pride all throughout this series. And so we see that in Haman, right? 
and his pride has hit a fever pitch. But also, I believe, man, even in the story in the beginning, we saw it in Mordecai and Esther in ways where they decided, hey, I need to do something about this. But you see, the other side of that is we can learn to trust God in and through it. I think we also see this in the story of Esther, right? Like when Mordecai comes to Esther and he says, hey, maybe it's for such a time as this. And Esther's response is, okay, I'll go before the king and even if I perish, I perish. So what does it mean to trust God in and through it? And how is this God who is unnamed seen in the story where, well, today we get to see this very thing in the story because God's providence is all throughout it. Now, sometimes people, as they read this, or even in life, like we have these things we call coincidences, right? Like, well, that's a coincidence. But today, what I want us to see is this this is far greater than any coincidence. This is God's providence at work. Providence, according to one writer, is the way that God directs the flow of human history through the ordinary lives of individuals to fulfill his promises. So remember the theme I shared earlier. God has you here for a purpose and he will always keep his promises even when we feel he is not there. And I think to add to that, I would say that he uses all of it. Every part of our lives. The good, the bad, the easy, the hard, the laughter, the tears. Even the mundane stuff. Even the broken things of life to work in and through us and in and through our stories for for two things. One, for our ultimate good, Romans 8, 28, and for his ultimate glory. And so today in the text, my hope is just to lay before us the beauty of God's providential power in ways that grow our faith in the midst of any and all circumstance. And in the midst of whatever it is, that that we would be drawn to greater worship as we realize that the good news of the gospel reveals to us the ultimate picture of God's providence at work in the world. And so let's look now at Esther chapter 6 verses 1 through 5 where we see that God providentially works through all people and situations, no matter how broken or rebellious, to fulfill his purposes and keep his promises. It says this beginning in verse 1. On that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Okay, so the text today begins with with almost a time stamp of on that night. And I believe that that's significant. And what the writer is trying to do in this story is try to get us to realize that, hey, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. If you remember from chapter 5, uh, Esther has gone before the king and, and, and thrown he and Haman a feast. And so Haman, following this feast, he's riding high after being invited to see 
uh, Esther and Xerxes, right? Like, like it was just Esther, the king, and, and Haman. And so he feels like, man, I am, man, I'm the guy. But what we saw is that as he's headed home, he sees none other than Mordecai. And man, that rage, that jealousy, that, that thing, that, that, that anger and the need for revenge that is driving everything that Haman does. Man, it just begins to boil again. He burns with such rage that he conspired not simply to kill Mordecai, but to shame him by hanging on a 75-foot gallow. Now, now I want you to get the picture of this. This isn't just some noose that's 75 feet long. In Persian culture, a gallow uh, was likely a spike that they would just impale you on. And so this is the same night. On that same night. You see, the reason I believe the writer of Esther wants us to remember that it was on that night is because it plays a big role in the providence we see moving forward. Because on that night, the king could not sleep. Which again is our first providential thing, right? The king couldn't sleep. Most commentators believe that something or someone had made sleep to flee from him. And so what does he do? Well, what he doesn't do is decide, hey, I'm up, everybody else is going to get up. Instead, what is he, he calls uh, some of those that are uh, serving him. And he says, hey, bring the book that, that chronicles the memorable deeds that others have performed for him through his reign. Now, now I want us to understand what's going on here. The, the king isn't asking for a little light reading, okay? How many of you, like in the scripture, you've read Chronicles, right? Not light, uh, pretty difficult to get through in some moments, repeats itself a lot in a lot of numbers and names. Nor is the king some kind of book nerd that loves a specific and detailed history genre about himself and what others have done for him. Rather, what most believe is taking place here is that the king wants these deeds read to him so that they might be so boring that he would fall asleep. Any of you, like, how many of you, like, if you can't sleep, well, maybe what's something that you do to just make yourself go to sleep? How many of you read? Right? How many of you have the great intention, like, you're not sleepy, and then you just get a book out and you're like... One page in, you know, out, I'm done. Did it for the day, check it off, you know. Don't dog ear the page, uh, close it and go on. You know, for some, you read, like you read to children, you sing songs, you know. Um, I, I remember my, my grandfather told me when I was a young kid, he said, yeah, when I can't sleep, I'll get out of bed, and he would go and find, he was an avid reader. He would find the heaviest book he had in the house, and he would take it back in the room. He wouldn't turn the light on or anything. He would lay in the bed and just put the book on his chest. And it would help him fall asleep. He was like, yeah, I'll do that, you know. And I was like, that's weird, uh, you know. You know, for some, like golf, right? Like, that's kind of the running joke. Like, if you want to take a nap on a Sunday, you turn golf on and you just go to sleep. Even, like, even golfers, like, we, like, I love golf, but I can turn it on sometimes and I'm out. You know, today I was going to talk about Aggie football, but my pride got in the way. 
and the Red Raiders lost last night to humble me. Um, and so I couldn't talk about that, about how it just makes you, it just lulls you to sleep, right? Don't worry, you've got your gigs right now. It's, it's coming. Uh, but that'll be another Sunday uh, when I get to talk about that. Um, <laughs> but you see, in doing this, a, a beautiful work of providence begins to unfold. Because as we saw in the text, as he's being read the stories after story after story, Mordecai and his story comes to the forefront. The story of two men that sought to lay hands, sought to kill the king, and Mordecai hears about it and he goes and he stops it. And so Xerxes in the moment stops and he says, wait, wait, wait a second. And he asks a question about an event that took place about four years before this moment. Four years. Now, I don't know about you, but in reading that this week, I began to just kind of wrestle with some stuff regarding providence and the problem of delayed gratification. Like, why wait four years to remind the king about Mordecai? Well, guess what? The story's going to happen in a moment. But like in your life, have you ever wondered about the delays in providential care during a situation? I believe that even in the midst of the delays, that providential care is taking place. Like we just sang about it, right? But, but it's still, like if we're going to be honest with ourselves and with one another, like there are times when we get through something and we say, well, couldn't that not just happen quicker? Or, or maybe in a different way? Or maybe it didn't need to happen at all. Maybe for some of you today, like maybe you've made it through those moments. Maybe you're in the midst of one right now and you're still waiting. And I'm not saying it's going to be four years. I'm not going to say it's going to be 40 years. It might be the rest of your life. But guess what? We know how the story ends. You see, the reality for us in situations like this is while we may never know the reason for the timing of the when and or the why or the way, Esther's story and ultimately the story of Jesus revealed to us that it is simply enough to trust that God has a plan because he has heard, as I heard one writer state, he holds the cards. And so it is important for us in the midst of it all to realize like, no, I know what God has done. I know what he's doing. And he said, I'm coming back and I'm going to make all things new. But you see, the, the thing is, is that in the same moment that Haman is building a 75-foot gallow to hang Mordecai on, the king hears a story that reminds him of Mordecai's actions that saved his life. And he asks to be told, what has been done for this man, Mordecai, in, in, in light of this great act of heroism? And the answer is this, nothing tangible. Mordecai saved the king. A man that Mordecai likely didn't care for. And all he has gotten is an enemy in Haman and a decree to destroy not only him but every Jew. Now, that's one part of the answer, but I believe that there is a deeper answer. Because Esther is now in a place near the king. And the greater answer, as we see today, is a God who is working through it all to fulfill his purposes and promises in and through God's people. 
And so may we remember this in our own lives. Again, as we just sang, we know how it ends. And yet in the story, this answer of nothing comes as a shock to the king. Because guess what? Persian kings were known for rewarding well those who took care of them. One story I read that a man was given an entire province in the kingdoms to govern over because he saved the life of the king's brother. And yet Mordecai's actions were greater and nothing yet. And so the king who couldn't sleep now really can't sleep. He's awake. He's ready to go. He's excited to rectify the situation. But, but instead, well, what he does is he immediately asks another question. He says, hey, hey, just a second. Who's in the court? And I think for us, it's like, well, no. Like, who cares who's in the court? Go get Mordecai. Reward him. Like, why not act? Well, I think because of what we know about the king and what we know about this story, I believe there's really three reasons. One... This king, as we've seen, is prideful and he needs someone to hype his great deeds. Guess what? In the end, uh, him rewarding Mordecai is not about Mordecai. It's about the king. The king wants people to know, hey, look what I'm about to do. Yeah, they did that, but I'm about to do something so great. Who's in the court so I can tell them about it and they can just, let's get this hype train rolling. But secondly, this king, as we've seen in his pride, is insecure in decision-making. And so he wants wisdom on how to best reward. We've seen that all throughout the story. From the, begin- from the get-go, he asks people, hey, what should I do about this? And they give him some really foolish wisdom. But lastly, although we don't see him, God and providence is at work. Because guess who happens to be in the court? Our boo boy himself, Haman, right? He's there. Like Haman has made his way to the court. And, and, and after hearing, like, the reason he's there is because he wants to be first in line. Like Haman knows that Xerxes is a busy man that has a lot of people that want his attention. And so he gets up and, and, and says, I got to go now so I can be first. But you see, to his surprise, the king is up. But not only is the king up, the king's ready to go. So what he does, he says, hey, come in. Now, we're about to get to it in a second, but just imagine what Haman feels like in this moment. Could things get any better? It's all falling into place, right? And he's not even having to wait. The king's already awake, like, man, let's go, let's get in there, let's do this. But as we see here and as we see in Proverbs 16, pride and ego, no matter how great and unstoppable it seems, guess what? When pride comes, the fall will come. And oh, what a great fall it'll be. And so let's continue in the story now in verses 6 through 11. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. 
Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horses you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. All right, so before we get into what, uh, into all that, I, I want you to just think about something. Have you ever been asked a question that was too good to be true? Like it's one of those kind of open goal moments where you're like, no matter what I say, it's going to go great. But in that moment, you kind of find yourself without an answer. Like it, it's just too much. It, oh, the question overwhelms you. are like, I don't know. There's so, like, so many possibilities. There's so many things I could say. You find yourself at a loss for words. If you want to test this, just maybe take, uh, if you have a child or a grandchild, or just take a kid to Walmart into the toy aisle and say, if you could have any toy, what would you have? Their head will explode, right? Like you just see the glitching start and you're like, whoa, 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 hey, hey, you know, and, but give them time. Like don't press them, just give them some, like they, they, they don't know what to do because it's like, well, what about this one? And what about that one? And what, and, and it, it just goes on and on and on. Or maybe you ask them, you know, my, my daughter this week, uh, so I'm coaching six youth soccer. Pray for me. Uh, it is, it's wild times out there. Uh, we're chasing soccer balls and squirrels all at the same time. And I'm out there, so my two oldest came with me. Uh, to, they wanted to help and just be there, and so they were helping line some kids up. And at the end, I said, okay, I'm tired of wrangling children. We're going to just get them, in the, we're gonna get them at midfield. One at a time, I'm going to call their names, and they're going to just kick the ball as hard as they can, run as fast as they can, and just try to score, right? We're just going to work on that over and over and over again. Well, um, there was a particular kid that was lacking some motivation in that, was pretty distracted. And so uh, my daughter decided, hey, I remember what my dad did when he coached me, so she decided to try it. Now, what I had done for her is when I coached her team, she was lacking in motivation, determination. She didn't have that killer instinct. Uh, And so I told her, I said, sweetie, what's your favorite food? And immediately she goes, oh, cheeseburgers. I said, all right. When you see that soccer ball, you think of a cheeseburger and you go get it. And she did. She did. She did. After that, she's like, dad, every time. And so she said, I'm going to do that. With this kid, and so she's sitting there, and I'm kind of—I kind of see him talking, and and, and uh, she, what she told me, what she asked him, she said, "Okay, what's your favorite dessert?" And the glitch started. It was too much, too soon. Uh, not it was way too many options. And, and what she said was, "They said, well, it's cake. No, it's cookies. No, it's ice cream. No, no, it's cupcakes. No." And they just—and she was like, I, "He just wouldn't stop talking. He could not make a decision." He got stuck. He lost all concentration. He he went to dessert land and it was gone. And and the reason I ask that is because, man, the question that the king lays before Haman, really I believe it does two things. First, it it, it causes Haman to get stuck. Not in the same way that I think necessarily where he's, I think he does believe, man, I've got a lot of options. And the answer he gives reveals that. But he's taken aback for a moment. 
He doesn't know what to do with this question. He wasn't expecting it. And so he's taken aback. But in his pride and hunger for position, he swings for the fences. So the question was this, what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman's internal response we see in the text is one of insecurity and fear. Because in the words of Tim Keller, the ego is fragile and is always in fear of being deflated. I mean, look at his eternal response. He says, oh no. Who does the king delight, to honor, delight in to honor more than me? Like that's his first thought. It, there can't be another. Who could it be, Right? But the reality is that ego and insecurity find no delight in the celebration and honoring of others. It only desires to consume others for the sake of self. And yet, guess what? It's never satisfied. The ego, be it Haman's or our own, when not set in Christ and the assurance that comes from our identity being rooted in who we are according to the gospel, which guess what? The gospel says this. Jesus on the cross said it is finished. And guess what? It is. And for everyone who comes to know Christ, our life begins with, I'm well pleased in you. Not because of what you've done. Guess what? You can't do enough. I love the Jesus' baptism story. Whenever he comes out of the water, that's what God says. He says, man, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Guess what Jesus had done up to that point? Not a thing. And yet God can say, I'm well pleased in him. Man, because of what Jesus has done in his resurrection, that's how God looks at his children. He says, I'm pleased in you. I'm pleased with you because he sees the Son. But not only that, our life ends with, man, as followers of Jesus, is well done. And guess what? All in the middle, he's the one that sustains and acts and moves and transforms our lives. But you see, when you miss that, you miss everything. See, if your identity is not set in Christ and the assurance that comes from that, being rooted in who we are, you will never feel like you're enough or that you've done enough. And you'll always fear that someone else is going to get something that you may feel like you deserve. I shared this last week that we miss it if we believe that what we do defines who we are. That's anti-gospel. You cannot do enough. Rather, the gospel says that this is what has been done for you through Christ. Therefore, when he redeems, he says, this is who you are now. And therefore, you are freed up, empowered, and commanded to go do. One's freeing, the other one's enslaving. You see, Haman and many others, even ourselves at times, we get get it mixed up. Because we all, if we're honest, probably have those moments where we're asked a question, maybe not like this, but similar, and we're like, wait, wait, what about me? Anybody ever watch Hook? There's that moment in Hook when Smee's like running around, he's like, uh, you know, and he's like, what about, what about, we, what about, what about Smee? <laughs> he, he begins to, res- no, I gotta, I gotta take care of me. You see, the good news in all of this is James 4, 6 says there's more grace. Guess what? Today for you, like if you, if you don't know Jesus, if you've heard about, maybe you're, you're here, you know something of him, but I mean, he hasn't transformed your life. Man, today is the day that, that you can turn to him. 
But maybe today you find yourself wrestling with a lot of those identity and maybe pride, ego questions. Maybe today is the day, as a follower of Jesus, you need to turn back to him. Because guess what? You can't be at rest if the question of where others stand remains. And so Haman answers in really a a confident but desperate flailing for, for power. For the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman says that three times throughout this text. That's his favorite. What Haman's doing in that moment, he's trying to craft an identity for himself. He, he latches on to what the king has said. He says, okay, I'm just going to say that. Over. I'm going to speak that into existence for myself, is what Haman believes. For the man whom the king delights to honor, what Haman wants and what we see is that he says, make him as much like the king as you can without making him king. Look what he says. He says, dress him in the royal robes of the king. He says, those clothes that you've worn... Maybe they have a little bit of that royalty still on them. Give them those. That horse that you rode, let them ride on it. And when you give it to them, have your most noble person dress him in royalty and parade him through the city, proclaiming, thus it shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. You see, Haman in this moment is the kid who's been asked about his favorite dessert. All his desires are flooding out in this moment. And guess what? Just as the kid was only left with a soccer ball to kick, Haman is only going to be left with a sobering blow that pride brings when it falls. Because Xerxes hears this and he delights in this picture. And so he tells Haman, he says, hey, waste no time. This is a great idea. Probably one of your best. Don't waste any time. He says, go, you're the noble person you spoke about. And you need to perform all that you've just said on the king's behalf to none other than Mordecai. <laughs> like, just picture for a moment that shock head exploding ego shattering because what the king says is hey all those things you said you go do them for your greatest enemy the text I I love what the text says because the text I think actually takes it further the text says Mordecai the Jew you see Xerxes doesn't know it God does Because Xerxes thinks it's just about one man, but God's going to save his people. In this moment, what it's saying, even though we don't see it yet, is that, hey, this is way bigger than Mordecai. And that edict, that law that Xerxes presented back in the story, it's going to change. Something will be done to it. You see, this is the reality of all to trust in the foolishness of self rather than the wisdom of God. Ultimately, they will be made to be the fool, which is what we see in the text. For Haman has to do for Mordecai, his enemy, what he longed to be done for himself. Now, I think there's a lot in the story that applies to our response today, and we're going to get there in just a moment. But before going there, I want to kind of just end our text today 
Because I believe that, man, these last couple of verses really play into the, the entirety of the response. So let's look at 12 and 13. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Like, look at the dichotomy of the two responses here. After all this has happened, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then, hear this, his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Okay, so quickly, what we see following all that's transpired is that, one, Mordecai returns uh, just to his life at the king's gate. Like, what a day though, right? <laughs> like, Mordecai got up, not thinking anything, and then all of a sudden, he's dressed in robes, he's thrown on a horse, and, and the guy that he doesn't care for is walking in front of him. That's a pretty good day. And yet, he just goes back to the king's gate. You see, I think that's the reality of what our lives to be as followers of Jesus. You see, we are secure and sustained in the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. Because again, we know how the story ends and so we continue to live life for the glory of God. Guess what? Whether it's a high or it's a low, God is still at work. He is still good. The gospel is something you can look to that is still transforming your heart and lives around you. And so guess what? No matter how great the day is, guess what? You can go to work and proclaim the good news. You can go home and live uh, for the glory of God in your marriage, parenting, singleness, friendships, whatever it is. Whether it's high or it's low, you can do both. Because you're secure. Everything ultimate is taken care of. You see, Mordecai, on the other hand, returned, or while Mordecai returns to the king gate, king's gate, Haman leaves crushed and mourning and his head covered. Guess what? Pride will never satisfy and it will only leave you broken. It cannot produce what it promises. We can see this coming, but what I found harder to read this week was that those who were to be closest to him, they, they really do nothing to help him in the moment. They speak some truth to him. They don't even understand the full scope of it. Like, it's very prophetic what they're talking about here, right? But I don't know that they're the greatest of friends. You see, the response is, your fall's coming. And yes, it is. But I believe what they should have done is really just called him to humility. But again, they're only thinking of themselves. The proud devour one another as opportunity comes. There's no space for brokenness. And so as believers, may we call one another to humility and repentance in moments. And when in this moment, may we receive it, it, it in this truth and love with grace. And so as we hear that, the story's going to continue next week. That's what I love about working through Esther is it's just like every week we just kind of hit a cliffhanger where you're like, I don't know. You can read on. It's okay. But how do we respond to this? Well, I think there's a few ways. First, 
that we would trust in the God who works all things for our good and his glory. Again, remembering that God has you here for a purpose. He will always keep his promises even when you feel that he's not there. And so in your life, where today are you having a hard time seeing what God is doing? Where have you been waiting for him to show up, but he seems to be nowhere uh, that you need him? I want you to remember today who holds the cards. Again, that's easy to say, but I think the question that arises oftentimes is how do we know this to be true? Well, what's the answer? Y'all know it. Jesus. Jesus is the humble king that comes. And although he was celebrated, even as he entered the city of Jerusalem with cries of Hosanna in the highest, guess what? His parade turned into a death sentence upon the cross. And no one saw it coming. If there was ever a moment when the question, where is God, could arise, it was as Jesus hung on the cross and died. And yet God holds the cards. Although he died, the story was not over. Death did not win, but rather Jesus came and made a mockery of sin, death, and the grave. And he parades himself before his defeated enemies in all authority. Actually, scripture says he will make his enemies a footstool. This is why we can trust. Because the love of God is that great. Guess what? If God loves you enough to die for you, his love is great enough and big enough to see you through whatever situation or circumstance you find yourself in. Secondly, we learn to walk in humble dependence that exalts God and not prideful independence that exalts self. You see, the world around us is devouring itself because it seeks to live independently and exalt self rather than humble dependence upon God. And so our call as the church is to live radically different lives that reflect humility, dependence, and service towards the lost around us in ways that confound the world. And it begins with reorienting our worship. And then lastly, I think just one other thing we can do is that we can be a better friend to those when pride comes forth. That we could call it when we see it in gentleness and truth and receive it when it's brought to us. You see, the church is meant to be a place where pride is left at the door because we realize that we're all broken and in need of grace and therefore we seek to outdo one another in showing honor, serving one another and laying down ourselves for others because Jesus laid down his life for us. That's what we're after. And so I'm going to have the team come back up. And I just want, you to, I just want to invite you uh, to a, a time of response. Maybe today for you, it's that wrestling and the tension of the question of uh, trusting God with whatever situation it is. Maybe today as you hear this, maybe it's that, that, that question or, or realizing that may, maybe your desires aren't really uh, the, the God's will, but maybe it's, hey, this is what you just want. Maybe as you wrestle and think and look, maybe today you just need to be reminded that we know how the story ends. I think we need that to be a constant reminder in our lives because guess what? Life is hard. And we don't want to take that lightly. I mean, praise God that we uh, 
We do know how the story ends, but also praise the Lord that he has not called us to follow alone, that he's called us into the body, the church. And that's what we want to be. We want to be a people of humble dependence and simply do two things, that we would invite people to Jesus, both with our words, but also that that we would be an inviting presence in how we live life. And in that, that we would also, that we would call one another to live out the gospel. To proclaim the hope that we have in Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. And then uh, our other two elders, Ronnie and Nathan, are going to come forward. And they are going to be here with the elements, the the bread uh, and the cup. Uh, it's just juice, by the way. So uh, you are, if you're a follower of Jesus, redeemed by the blood of Christ, whether you're a partner here or you're just visiting today, we want to invite you to come to the table. We want to invite you to come and share in communion. And so after I pray, you'll be able to move forward. You'll take uh, the bread and the cup and you'll go back to your seat. And then what I'm going to do is I'll lead us in, in taking communion together we would do this as a reminder to one another what Jesus has done today. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're just here, and we, again, we, man, you are welcome. And we are glad you are here, but we would ask that you abstain. Again, not for the sake of casting you aside or ostracizing you, but for the sake of saying, hey, come have a conversation. We want to tell you about the costliness of this and what it really means. And then what we're going to do after we get done with communion is we're going to sing a song about the reality that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that through every battle and hardship that that we believe that he is those things. And so let me pray for us. And then I'll have Ronnie and Nathan come forward. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time as we have uh, looked at just the reality that you were at work. that you never leave us or forsake us, that you uh, are working all things for our good and your glory. So God, I pray for each of us as we all have those moments of wrestling with the tension of where are you, what's going on, or uh, can this be done quicker, or uh, could it have gone another way? May we, as your son said in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. And in all of it, that we remember that The work is finished. And so God, may we worship in light of that. And may we live in light of that. Not because we need to do or perform, but because who you say we are as your people bought by the blood. In Jesus' name, amen.